This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Equity Minds. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. I always say I'm excited for this episode. It's become a bit of a running joke, yes. but I think this is a good episode. It's a timely episode because we do an Ask Us Anything every month. And the last Ask Us Anything, the markets had started dropping, but there wasn't that what the F is going on feeling out there. There wasn't that scared feeling out there. There wasn't that I don't want to look at my portfolio feeling. And March was definitely the month where those feelings really came in strong. Absolutely. If you've just joined the show, welcome. Thank you for joining us on our journey of investing and the many other thousands of equity mates out there in the community. What this episode is about, as Ren said, once a month, we collate all the questions that have come through our forum online, Ask Us Anything forum, through our social channels, our Equity Mates investing discussion group on Facebook to try and answer some of the more important ones or some of the ones that will benefit the community as a whole. As you can imagine, there has been a lot of questions, particularly through our Facebook group over the last month or so as markets have absolutely plunged across the world. Firstly, if you aren't part of the Facebook group, go and join. It's a wealth of information. And secondly, what we've done is aggregated a whole bunch of the questions that have come through there in this episode all related to the market downturn at the moment. So this is a bit of an Ask Us Anything market downturn special. So without any further ado, Ren, do you want to get stuck into this? Let's do it. Let's do it. So because we've had so many questions and we've grouped a lot of them thematically, so I guess I'll ask you the first question broadly. Entering the market, when and how? Wow, very broad. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of ways you could approach this, but I guess I'll just give my personal opinion on this, maybe get your view as well, Ren, and and hopefully that could help answer this question. I have entered the market a couple of times over the last sort of two to three weeks, maybe even a bit further back than that, to be honest. When the first sort of 10% correction came, I, I bought in then. But I think if you were to think about this more broadly, firstly, when to enter and how, I would not be putting all of your capital in one go, regardless of when you're entering, definitely be putting in proportionate amounts. And the reason for that is you don't know when the bottom is coming. You don't know when there is going to be a bounce. There is no point trying to time the bottom. And, you know, we see a lot of chat about, I think we've got another 5% to go. We've got another 20. When should I put in expecting there to be a bounce? There's no point trying to do that. If you could do that, then you should be a professional investor and you'd be a multi-billionaire. So practically speaking, say I had $5,000 to put in, 
I would be splitting that into say five thousand dollar chunks or two two and a half thousand dollar chunks, whatever you feel comfortable, and entering over uh, an extended period of time. And that's where you get your dollar cost averaging effect. There's no point trying to pick where the bottom is going to be. If you're not feeling comfortable about entering at the moment, then there's nothing wrong with just sitting tight and letting the volatility go out of the market and things settle down a bit. There's obviously a lot to come, especially here in Australia with coronavirus and a lot of unknowns. So I would definitely not be putting everything in right now. What's your view with that, Ren? I'll answer it the same way you did in starting speaking from personal experience and then going broader. So personally, I've put two lots of money into the market. I put one lot in last Friday and then one lot in the Friday before, just into market ETFs. I didn't expect that I'd pick the bottom, but my plan is just to average in over the next few months, both to ETFs and individual stocks. So ETFs tracking indexes and individual stocks. But... Also speaking from personal experience, my folks have asked me, you know, when should we be putting money in? And for them, because I know them and I know that their tolerance for seeing losses would probably be a lot lower than mine just because different stage of life, you know, not as experienced in markets, not as interested in markets. I've told them just to just to wait because I, I think this will probably drop further. You know, we, we don't want to make predictions here because no one knows this is uncharted territory. But while the rate of infection is increasing, yeah. you wouldn't expect things to get better in markets and in the broader economy. When the rate of infection starts slowing down, that's when you start to see that we've got control of it. Yeah. And that for me might be a more appropriate time for me to tell my folks to throw some money in because balance of probabilities, it's less likely to keep falling there than it is likely to keep falling where we are now, Mm. where we seem to be on the upswing in terms of infection rate. Absolutely. So obviously we don't give advice and at a time like this, no one really knows what's going on. So if someone's telling you they can pick the bottom, don't listen to another word they say. But for me... I know my tolerance for losses. I know I can look at my portfolio and see it 40% down and say, that's okay, it will come back. But if you don't have that tolerance, then you probably just need to think about waiting a little bit longer. But yeah, I think if you if you can tolerate it, average in. So that kind of flows somewhat into the next question, Ren, which is why is selling now a bad thing if you do think the market is going to fall a bit further that you can then buy back in later as the market continues to fall. Let's give an example. I had someone say to me the other day, okay, so I bought my stock at 10. It's now gone down to eight. I've sold. It's now gone down to five and I'm thinking of buying back in. Why do people say don't sell in a downturn? Because you might sell at eight and buy back in at five or you might sell at eight and then be forced to buy back in at 15 because it bounces. People have time and time again historically proven that humans are shithouse at picking things. (laughs) (laughs) We we are bad at predicting things. We have a whole bunch of cognitive biases that we uh, apply onto our analysis of stocks you know we anchor to things we think things will keep going in a certain way we are just not good at picking markets and so for everyone that sells at the top and buys back in at the bottom there's probably nine other people that have somehow cooked it and managed to lose money so 
what we talk about and, you know, what we have learnt through what we've read and the people we've spoken to is that rather than trying to pick these moments, just holding for the long term consistently bears out over the long term has better performance. So if you think you can pick it, if you think you've got some technical analysis indicator that tells you when you should be buying, you know, the 200-day moving average over the 30-day moving average, whatever it is, go for your life. But for most people, they're not going to be able to pick it. I definitely can't pick it. Like Afterpay dropped, what, 90% in a day? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Not that much, but yeah, quite and significant then, drop. And then it bounced back 50%. Yeah. And one of our mates traded that upswing and thought he was a day trader. Yeah. But my point to him was like, you know, the the market over overcorrected on one day and then responded. Do that for four more trades with Afterpay and then come tell me that you're a day well, he tra- trader. He tried, to, he tried to day trade Microsoft that night in the States and lost money on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the market is a combination of economic fundamentals, financial indicators and a whole bunch of mass psychology. And we don't have the capital to move markets. So we are constantly playing catch up and we're constantly responsive to what the market is doing. For me, you're going to get burnt. Yeah. We should put a caveat on it though, that there are instances, like we're not saying do not sell at all. That's just our personal sort of philosophy behind this. You know, we've spoken with some experts and some of them suggest that there are instances where you might want to be selling if you don't understand the company, if it doesn't match the thesis that it had prior to the downturn. There are certainly instances, you know, you might be feeling stressed about your financial situation. There are instances where it is okay to sell. We, I just want to stress that this is our personal view when it comes to selling in a downturn. Sorry, to be very clear, the example you gave was selling and then buying back in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you don't know what you're holding or anything, yeah, sell it. Don't buy it in the first place. Yeah. But don't sell and then think you're going to be able to buy back in yeah, and yeah. profit from that. Yeah. Yeah. And look, this is a classic example of a moment where you probably could have done it with your whole portfolio. You probably could have cashed out in January. <laughs> yeah. Or even as things started sliding in mid-Feb, and right now you could buy back your whole portfolio for 50% 20, discount. Yeah, 20% cheaper or something. <laughs> so like don't get us wrong, like if that's what you want to do, go for it, make your money, power to you. But there's definitely people out there that will just cause a whole lot of stress, a whole lot of anxiety, a whole lot of worry and it will make them not want to invest. And for those people, we want to make it very clear that that anxiety is unnecessary. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So speaking of anxiety as well, Ren, uh, there's been a lot of chat around emergency funds. And this is a time that, you know, we really need to start thinking about our financial situation more broadly. A lot of us haven't been, uh, have never gone through this type of experience. So not only do we think about our investing, but we need to think about our own sort of cash flow. You might have an emergency fund sitting there and you're looking at the market going, 
oh my goodness, there's a lot of opportunities there and I've got a bit of cash yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, Ren's like selling his computer, selling his <laughs> TV just to get some cash to throw in the market. Are you throwing your emergency fund into the market, Ren? It's a very good question and it's a question that has come up a bit on our Facebook discussion group and on some of the other Facebook discussion groups that I'm in. It's an emergency fund for a reason. And now more than ever, this is a time of emergency. Resist the temptation. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a job and you can work from home and you've got your income coming in, that is great. But we don't know how long this is going to last. Unless you work in the toilet paper manufacturing industry, (laughs) you don't know what's going to happen. Just resist the temptation. Yeah. The best case scenario is that you get through this crisis you look back and you say, I wish I had put my emergency fund in the market. I could have done it. That is the best case scenario for you because there's a non-statistically insignificant chance that you look back and say, thank God I had my emergency fund because I really needed it in that time. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to have thrown it in the market and then not be able to use it when you need it. Mm-hmm. So if you get through the crisis and you still have that full emergency fund intact... You shouldn't be lamenting it. You should be thankful that you've still got your job and stuff like that. <laughs> I would also add to the point there that if you are having to sell stocks to fund your current sort of situation, then maybe take a step back when everything sort of settles down to understand what we mean when we say you don't want to be investing money that you're going to need in an emergency. If you have been over the last sort of five or six years building up this portfolio and now everything is needs to be sold because you don't have your emergency fund, perhaps think about how you can change that going forward because at the end of the day, it's pointless investing in the market if it's all, all needs to be sold in a situation like this. So something to consider. Yeah, and I guess I've always been pretty lax when it comes to the rule of thumb being you need three months of expenses. I've sort of always done it. I've sort of ballparked it with my emergency (laughs) fund. Now would be the time that you really get tested on have you got three months, a full three months worth of expenses. Unlike you, Ren, I've had my Excel spreadsheets (laughs) running hard in the background (laughs) and I'm not ballpark. I'm hour by hour. (laughs) I know, I'm covered. Yeah, nice. What's your your hourly uh, burn rate? It's it's good. I live a luxurious life, friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'll ask you one now. Dollar cost averaging yes. is a big topic in the community and we've touched on it before, but for people that are unfamiliar, it is essentially where you put a consistent amount of money into the market at a regular time interval. And when the market is expensive, when share prices are up, that consistent amount of money buys less shares or less units of an ETF or whatever. And when prices are low that set amount of money buys more. But the consistent thing is you're putting a consistent amount of money in at consistent timings. So there's a lot of questions around that at a time like this because markets are down a lot. And so people are asking, why would you be dollar cost averaging in now? Why wouldn't you wait? So let's start there. What what do you think about that? We sort of answered this in the first question, it being you don't know where the market is going to stop falling. So there's no point trying to time that. Why now? Well, I've been dollar cost averaging into the market over the last year anyway. And the whole point of dollar cost averaging is to do it at a consistent sort of interval so that you do get that average price. I was sort of dollar cost averaging in around about every quarter last year. So not often, 
and that was because you know we were at quite sort of significant highs in the market and we weren't really sure what was going to be happening but it was still important to get in the market once this downturn started i then moved to a more frequent dollar cost i did similar to you one Friday, then the next Friday, and then I kind of got really burnt on both of those <laughs> trades. So now my approach is I'm just going to be doing once a month. The reason I've moved from quarterly to every month is because, you know, we're getting quite significant discounts in the market and we don't know when it's going to bounce, but I want to be taking the opportunity to get in at these much lower levels. So why now? Well, you know, we, we haven't had an opportunity like this for the last 10 to 12 years. So I see it as a great opportunity and the whole reason of dollar cost averaging is to take out the stress and I guess the idea of having to pick the best moment to enter a market. It takes out the timing of it and smooths things out. So there's really no reason if you're in a position to do so that you could start and you might want to do it every two months. It, it's completely up to you but I guess the, the key thing is to be as consistent as possible with it over a period of time. I know I've changed my frequency, but over the next period, I imagine maybe the next year, I'm looking at sort of every month or so. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. But the logic doesn't change. No. The second part of that question was, would you dollar cost average into individual companies rather than indexes? At this stage, no, I'm very much using this as an opportunity to double down on building my base of indexes. I think right at the start of the year, I said I'm going to be moving away from trying to stock pick at this stage and move into LICs and, and indexes just to build that base. And, you know, I've got three or four ETFs that I'm very keen on quite significantly building. Having said that, I'm not going to not buy companies, but I'm not going to dollar cost average into, into individual companies at this stage. There's a lot going on in that space and I'm not paying close enough attention to a lot of them to feel comfortable to dollar cost average in. I'm more confident in just building my exposure to a number of indexes, both in Australia and overseas. Interesting. I mean, I, I take the opposite side of that. I am definitely going to dollar cost average into companies. There is absolutely nothing wrong with if you if you have a good company, if it, you're confident that it's going to remain solvent through this time and come out the other side even stronger, there is nothing that, in fact, you should be dollar cost averaging in. You should be taking advantage of these lower prices. Obviously, there is more risk because it's an individual company rather than a diversified bunch of companies. But, you know, to take a big company that I reckon everyone is looking at right now, you know, if you want to dollar cost into Amazon, go for your life. <laughs> like the buying opportunities for some of these companies at these prices is rare. So don't feel like you have to dollar cost average into indexes. At least this is what my personal view is. But, you know, if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, then you obviously run into the lack of diversification risk. So if you want to do it into individual stocks, maybe have a bucket of stocks that you do every quarter or something like that or whatever it is. But yeah, don't feel like you can't. No. Yeah. One of the, I guess, side questions that come from that is if you're doing individual companies and you don't have a lot of cash, you're obviously hit with brokerage yeah and so the frequency of dollar cost averaging in is probably the thing that you need to think about and just a reminder just get more cash <laughs> <laughs> not easier said than done ren and maybe just a reminder from our side our sort of rule of thumb is try to keep your brokerage at less than one percent of your trade if you can you know if you're buying into even pocket 
and you're putting in a hundred bucks, but you're spending two dollars on brokerage each time, then as a percentage, it's quite high. So, things to consider when you're dollar cost average. But yeah, two sort of different approaches there, but neither are wrong nor right. Completely up to you how you want to do it. Yeah. So I think at this point, let's just summarize some of the key points of where we're at. It's a scary time, but as Warren Buffett says, you've got to be greedy when others are fearful. And it's easy to say that quote when things are good. It's a lot harder to live it when things are bad. But that's really the first thing that we're thinking. The second thing is make sure that you've got your finances sorted. Make sure that you've got your emergency fund sorted. And if you lose your income for a number of months, you're set. And don't put that money into the market because you might need it. And then the third thing is if you can pick bottoms, if you can trade, you know, these this volatility, go for it. But for the majority of people, that's unnecessary stress and that's a sure way to lose money. Just be calm, be consistent and put money that you can afford to put into the share market into either big diversified indexes or into companies that you've done the work on and you're confident are going to survive and do well afterwards and then just slowly and consistently put money into it. That That's really, I think, the the broad message that we've trying to get across so far in this episode. Nice. All right, a couple of questions to go before we wrap it up, Ren. We see a lot prices down, particularly using, let's say, inverse ETFs. There's been uh, some great price jumps <laughs> for good reason in them, and we see a lot of questions. Is it too late to jump on, say, BBUS? How do you respond to that? If I'm totally honest, I don't, I don't love this question just because if you're trying to time some of these like triple inverse ETFs, but you're trying to time it by just crowdsourcing information from Facebook, there's probably a little bit of a disconnect there between the work that you need to do to actually day trade and then the work that you are doing. And look, that's not to say that you can't ask these questions and get confirmation and all of that. But I just think if you want to day trade, do the work to be able to day trade. Like there is so much information out there on technical analysis to look at momentum, to look at volume and all of that stuff. Do that work and and go all in on it. And then you can make a lot of money trading these interday swings. Then, you know, you're well within your rights to hold BBUS. For me, I haven't bought any negatively correlated products. I'm not trying to time this downturn. And I think if you're unsure and you're looking for advice from our Facebook group, it may not be the right product and the, the right strategy may be to not try and time the market and to focus on what will happen in six months' time, in six years' time and for some people who are lucky enough to still be young in 60 years' time mm. and that would be sort of where my head is at. If the questions are, is it too late to jump on insert any long stock? Well, no, because everything's been <laughs> smashed, basically. I think there's five, no, there's six companies that are up in the ASX 200 last month. And I think there's five companies in the S&P 500 that are up in the last month. So to go long, no, nothing's too late. Just to clarify that the B bus is the US equities strong bear fund. And then there's a B boz, which is the Australian boz. <laughs> I don't know if we gave a good answer there, but look, the, the fact of the matter is... <laughs> Timing the market beats timing the market. Yeah. If you have to ask if it's too late, it probably is. All right, so I'll ask you this one. What do you think about the Aussie dollar sinking at the moment? What is the difference between hedged and unhedged funds? 
The dollar sinking at the moment is not great for anyone who wants to be travelling overseas, although you're probably unlikely to be travelling overseas <laughs> at the moment. It's great if you've got some assets or some cash in US dollars because just by nature of the Aussie dollar sinking, the value of those assets and the dollar is going to be worth more. What is the difference between hedged and unhedged? Hedged essentially means that currency risk is taken out of the equation unhedged means that you are exposed to currency risk. So if we take an example of an ETF that might be hedged, what it means is that you will be buying an ETF in Australian dollars on the ASX. The underlying assets will be bought over in the US. You might be buying, the index might be buying US companies. They will be buying them in US dollars, but taking the risk out of having exposure to US dollars. Unhedged means that you will have exposure to the risk of changes in currency. Let's give a really simple example of that. If you own a US index and it goes up 10%, if the fund is hedged, then it doesn't matter what happened between the Australian dollar and the US dollar. You Correct. rate 10%. Yeah. But if the fund is unhedged and the fund goes up 10%, but the Australian dollar loses 10% against the US dollar, then you've actually made nothing. Correct. On the flip side, if... The fund makes 10% and the Australian dollar strengthens against the US dollar, then you make more money. Yes. Yeah. Conversely, if you have money sitting in US dollars or you have direct stocks in US dollars and the Australian dollar sinks, then you're going to make money on the value of those stocks. They will not make money, but the value of those stocks is going to be worth more if you convert back into Australian dollars. So it is something to think about. It's not necessarily something to worry about, I guess. If you are all hedged, then you may want to think about the long-term play, what's going to be happening to the Australian dollar. If you want to be buying US stocks at the moment, you might need to think about the impact of converting into US dollars at the moment. Your money is going to be certainly worth less than it was even a month ago. But to be honest, there are plenty of products out there that give you access to both hedged and unhedged. So what's your view on it, Ren? I agree with everything you said. Like it, when the, the Aussie dollar to US dollar is normally in like a band, I guess, from like 70 cents to like 85 cents. I'm sort of guessing those numbers, but I think that's ballpark about right. When it's in that band, thinking about currency, whatever. When it's lower than that, so like it is now, it's like what, 60 cents? I think even lower, but yeah. Yeah, it's then then it's like you you need to think twice about putting all of your money into US dollars when you get so few US dollars for your Aussie dollars. Mm. And then similarly when it's at the high end of the range, so in like 2007 or something it, it was there was parity, is that right? 2007? Around then, I think. Yeah. yeah. Where and one Aussie dollar was buying one US dollar. That would have been the time to go all in on US stocks and unhedged funds and really maximize your exposure to the US dollar because the Aussie dollar was so strong. So for me, it's not a massive consideration. I mean, I'm not going to stop buying US shares because of the weaker currency, but I might just put some of them on the back burner and focus on Australian companies in the meantime. The other thing you can think about is in the short term, there are going to be a bunch of companies that benefit from a weak Australian dollar. So in particular, companies that sell products overseas, but then report in Australian dollars. Because if you're a miner and you know, you're know you selling iron ore to China and they pay you in Chinese currency, they pay you in US currency, 
and then when you report it to Australian investors, you convert it back to the Australian dollar. Even if you're not getting paid more by your customers, it's worth more in Australia. So there are a bunch of companies that will benefit from a weak Aussie dollar. There are a bunch of companies that will lose from a weak Aussie dollar. But hopefully what we see is the Aussie dollar normalizes over time and you know some of those effects are dulled if you're thinking long term. Nice. All right, one more question to go and then we will wrap this up. All right, I'm going to ask you this one because I think you've done the work on it. Some of the ETFs that people are buying, especially the ones that track US indexes, which trade at different times, obviously, to when they can buy the Australian ETFs, aren't exactly mirroring what the US index is doing. So, for example, people might be buying an S&P 500 index and the S&P 500 overnight might go up 4%, but then the Australian ETF isn't going up 4% the next day. Why is that? It's all to do with futures, Ren. So yeah, I consulted the BetaShares website and I'll just read out a couple of things that I've come across that explain why this is the case. Because to be honest, we have had a few questions around this and you know some people might be getting a little bit burnt. So you know, holders of an ETF, as you said, S&P 500 or NASDAQ may read that the index moved 10% overnight only to find that this move is not matched in, in price when the ETF trades on the ASX. Now, the reason for this lies in the fact that in order to give the most accurate pricing of an international ETF, which is trading when an underlying stock market is closed, so the ASX, future prices are used. So future prices are used because futures markets operate around the clock even when these exchanges are closed. For example, US equities markets close at 4pm New York time. The Australian markets don't open until four hours later. During this period, the US futures markets continue to trade and it's these futures prices that are used to determine the fair value of an international ETF during our trading day. So in times of volatility like this, a lot can happen in those three hours leading to significant moves in the futures prices. So when the ASX opens, the market makers for international ETFs will set their opening prices with reference to the relevant futures markets and it's the best indicator of fair value while equity markets are closed. So movements in futures prices can be even greater over the weekend. So definitely keep that in mind as they're always open. They are trading even when equities markets are closed. So another thing to think about, we've just spoken about currency and another thing to consider is price movements in unhedged funds can be influenced by currency fluctuations as well. So it's all to do with the futures markets and the reason being that they're always open and a lot can happen while both the underlying market is closed, being the ASX, and the international market closing as well. So I hope that answers the question. It's something to be aware of. And if you are interested in the futures markets, just go in and type futures markets, NASDAQ, US, whatever in Google, and you can have a bit of a look. If you want more information on that, I would certainly suggest checking out the BetaShares website or even other ETF market makers and providers because they've got information on, on this in more detail as well. So before you buy those sorts of products, definitely understand how they work because I feel like some people are buying them thinking that they work in one way where in actual fact they work in another. 
So, Ren, we'll leave it there. Uh, Hopefully that has answered a lot of the questions that are coming through the group and for our community. Very much looking forward to the next episode and we'll leave it there. Nice one. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 